Thank you guys. Appreciate that. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm really glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be in uh, chapter 4 of the book of John, the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book of the New Testament, probably about three quarters uh, of the way into your Bible. And I just wanted to take a, a moment here, and I want to kind of prep you with a question, and I'm going to tell you a story. And the question is, is this. Have you ever felt like or experienced that moment when you've been caught? You've been caught. You've been found out. You've been busted. Whatever you want to say. Think about what that feels like. Well, back in college, I was dating my now wife, Heidi. That's right. <laughs> and we were going to go home to her, her home, and, uh, and we were going in her car. And I don't know if, if you, you understand this or can relate to this, but it was like, just like this assumption that she would drive her car. I think that makes sense. Like she's, ins- you know, her name's on the insurance and all that stuff. But, but I, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. Not because she's a bad driver, because she is, but that's beside the point. But, but because, like, I want to be in control, right? When we go somewhere now, I drive. And that's outdated or outmoded or whatever. I don't care. That's what I prefer. That's what I like to do. And, and, so, and so we're going, and Heidi has this beautiful, beautiful 1900-something, maybe 80, uh, Ford Tempo that's like this aquamarine green, right? Uh, it's got the crank handles, the manual locks, and no cruise control. And so we're going. We're going to northeast Ohio. We're on 70 east, east of uh, uh, Columbus. It's a very hilly uh, terrain. And, and Heidi's a foot tapper on the accelerator, right? So she has no cruise control, so she's foot tapping on that accelerator, and you're sitting there, and you're just going like this the whole way. The whole way, no, well, they're, they're the whole way, not because there's music on or whatever, because she's a foot tapper. She's an she's a okay driver now, thankfully, right? But, but we're, we're in that spot. I'll pay for this later, don't worry. Uh, uh, we're, in that, we're in that spot on 70, and, and uh, I look over, and the gas light's on, right? I don't know her car. I don't know what that really means. Everybody's car's a little bit different. Some people, if your gas light comes on, you better be pulling into a gas station. If it's not on, like you got another 50 miles, or it comes on maybe for you, you got another 50 miles. And so I said, hey, Heidi, you see that light? She goes, oh, yeah, I'll just stop at the next exit. Okay, no big deal, right? We're going, we're going. It's one of those stretches where it's really hilly, and you just keep looking for an exit sign. You're looking for those big green signs with this is where, this is what's at this stop. And you're trying to figure it out. It was before smartphones. I didn't pull have a map pulled up or anything. And, and sure enough, we get to the top of a hill and we go down. And we start to go back up a hill and it starts to stall. And it's not because she's foot tapping. It's because the engine's going out that we're rocking back and forth. And so we get to the shoulder and come to a stop. And, you know, it's all that. And. Thankfully, she had AAA, and we were in that dating stage where I was willing to do obscene things to be with her, right? Like, it's no big deal. We got broke down the side of the road. We missed a gas station. No big deal. Yeah, I'll talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours because I love to do that. No, I just wanted to be with her, right? So I was willing to do those things. So I'm there. We're there on the side of the road. We get out. We kind of get up on the embankment. We're sitting there, and we talk. We have this, this great moment. But I, I think about that story. Because in that story, there's that moment where you realize the gas gauge is going down. And you realize we can do this. You have this unrealistic confidence. We can get there. We can make this. And there's that sinking feeling the moment the engine starts to sputter. The moment the car starts to die. There's that 
that feeling of being found out, of being caught. It's, it's, it's kind of like why like you're driving along, you're going the speed limit, you see a cop and you slow down. Why? Like, like you're not breaking any rules or laws, but you slow down. It's maybe you have a recurring dream about being at school with no pants on. That's weird, but you're somehow worried about being exposed. That's something that somebody, we all have that dream. Or maybe you know that feeling when a teacher or a professor calls on you for an answer and you have no idea what they're even talking about. You have that moment where you have been caught. Or maybe that time when you're talking to somebody and you're just kind of making it up and acting like you know what's going on, and they ask you a question, you got nothing. You got nothing. I'd love for you online, I'd for here in this room, I'd even love to hear from you guys. Do you have those moments, that, that feeling of like, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, I've been caught. Oh, I am stuck here. You have, you have a feeling like that? You ever a story where that experience happens? You have a feeling where you feel like, man, I'm caught. I've been exposed. Here, seriously, raise your hand. Tell me of a time where that happens to you. Online, go ahead and comment as well. A feeling where you've been exposed, you've been caught, you've been found out. What do you think? Yeah. Heidi. Whenever people talk about shows, you don't Oh, we talk about a show you don't watch, you have no idea what they're talking about, and you're, you're friendly. You're very, very friendly, Heidi. And so you just nod. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny that you'd say, if you see it, you said, no, no, not at all. Yeah, it's that weird, weird feeling, yeah? Yeah. Absolutely. It's like this sinking feeling where suddenly they know more than I do, and now they know that they know more than I do. Or it's that moment where it's like, yeah, I, I should have been doing that, and now I've been caught. And we can come up with all kinds of really hard examples that are very painful to talk about. But there's kind of that universal feeling of, oh, I was putting up a front. I was putting up a facade. I was pretending I had it all together. And now I've been exposed as a fraud. We've been in this series called the Gospel of John. And it's simply that. We're going through the Gospel of John and we're to chapter four now. And in this gospel, what we have is not a journalist, not a biographer, someone who's writing a story for a specific purpose. He's telling a story, telling the story of Jesus for a specific purpose. And his purpose is this, so that you may believe. He's writing this not to inform. He's writing this not to tell fun stories. He's writing this not to document. He's writing this so the audience would come to belief. In week one, we talked about how God came to earth. The Word became flesh, that Jesus is God's Son. That's a great metaphor. But we could also say this, Jesus is God come to earth. Jesus is God in human form. In week two, we talked about how Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at this wedding. And it wasn't just any water. It was the water that they would use to wash their hands, this purification rite. And there's these big vats, these big 60-gallon stone uh, uh, barrels of water. And he turned that disgusting water into the best wine anyone has ever tasted. And we kind of said, well, God's doing something here. He's, he's throwing this incredible party, and all are invited. Last week, we looked at the story where, where Jesus goes into the temple, and he turns over tables, and he creates a whip, and he drives out the animals that were there for sacrifice, being sold for sacrifice. And we talked about how God's anger is, is pure, and God's anger is righteous, and, but God's anger is not about vengeance. God's anger is about justice, it's about making things right, because in one moment, he's driving people out of the temple, and then the next verse, it's nighttime, and he's talking with a religious leader who was in charge of the temple telling him exactly what he's up to and that's where we get john 3 16 for god so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. In that moment, God's anger is not to tell this man how wrong he is, it's to show him how loved he is. See, the Gospel of John is full of all these contrasts. We have light and dark. We have legalism and grace. These contrasts of people who shouldn't be together. People are coming together that shouldn't be there. We have things that shouldn't go together, like water used for hand-washing turned into wine. And here in John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, John chapter 4, verse 4, we have the first moment we have two people that shouldn't be together coming together. John chapter 4, verse 4, it'll be on the screen. John says this, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Let's stop right there. Actually, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. It was convenient. It was shorter. Think of it this way. He's in Jerusalem, just to the north is in this time is an area called Samaria. It's a region. Basically goes Jerusalem, Samaria, Galilee, okay, where Jesus is, is going in this story. And in this story here, in this moment, he's going to Samaria, but there's this, all this animosity, this, this division between the Jews and the Samaritans that goes all the way back to, to a civil war around Solomon. But here in this story, he says Jesus has to go through there. And the, that word there in the Greek kind of means he's compelled to do this, like he, was, he found himself with no other option. Now, the Pharisees would go way out of their way, go way to the west along the Mediterranean Sea, or go way to the east and go through the desert, and they would avoid Samaria because they wanted to be seen as pure and holy, and Jesus says, no, i got nothing to do with that. So he's going through Samaria. He's, he, John's telling us this is another contrast between how Jesus operates and how the Pharisees operate. Verse 5. So he count, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. Okay, a couple things. Heat of the day, is that time to go draw water? No. This woman is intentionally going to the well at a time when not many people are going to be there. She's somebody that's avoiding crowds. You know, I can think about the disciples. They, 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 they see Jesus is going to sit there at the well. Now we got to go into town and get food. And they're probably thinking to themselves, well, here Jesus goes again. He's got to withdraw from the crowd. He's got to get away to pray. He's, he has this pattern of doing this. And this woman is walking up. There's got to be this surprise, this shock of, well, there's someone already here. Well, I don't recognize him. I don't know who this person is. They'll probably just want to say anything to me. And the, she walks up hoping to avoid any kind of interaction. And he asks her for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then parentheses, John's essentially saying, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Other translations of that say, Jews do not eat with Samaritans or use the same utensils as Samaritans. So there's a law, there's a rule, there's a stigma, there's this division that there is a distance that must be created between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Going back to the the Jewish civil war, the, Israel, the civil war that wrecked Israel and divided it into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. And there in the north, this whole different group, this kind of different nation becomes Samaria by the time that Jesus is around. And this is a place where they've kind of created their own place of worship that's a competitor to Jerusalem. And Jesus is showing up here kind of just breaking all these rules. It's not just uncomfortable, but it goes against expectations. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you 
living water. Now here's, here's another one of those themes that we see over and over again in the Gospel of John. This idea that the good news is in plain sight. That it's not hidden, that there's not something you have to do to earn it. There's not, it's not something you have to, have to like achieve to get there. It is right there for you. Jesus says, if you knew what you were asking for, if you knew who I was, this would solve all of your problems. God is, is in plain sight. He isn't hidden. He's available. We continue to read, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So here, this woman's kind of confused, I think. I think, obviously, Jesus doesn't always speak very clearly. He's got a larger thing going, a larger metaphor here, and she's kind of confused, but she's open to this. Uh, she says, all right, I'm in for the water that's going to take care of thirst, never have to draw water again. That sounds great. She's open to Jesus. She wants what he's offering her. But notice what happens right after this. Jesus is talking about something that she is missing. She's not getting it. So look how the story changes. Look how Jesus' tone changes. There's a pivot here. And Jesus begins asking about her personal life. Jesus says this. He told her, go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. She is being caught. She has that, that sinking feeling. The cops, the, the lights are on behind her car. The teacher just called her out. The, the search history on your uh, web browser has been exposed. The, the phone calls and the texts that you thought were hidden have now been found out. She is being found out in this moment. And so she plays the game that she knows she's supposed to play. She says, okay, okay, you're a prophet. I got nothing. I am, I am not worthy of this. I am not holy. I got nothing. Okay, I know we are supposed to go over here to worship. You Jews are supposed to go here. She kind of lays out the battle line. She kind of lays out the arguments, right? She's just kind of going back to the, if I say these things, I'll be good. Us Christians, we do this too sometimes. We say, well... I'll be praying for you. We say, you know, I'm just, I'm just blessed. Or, you know, I, I don't, I'm just going to lean on Jesus. Things that are true. What this woman says is true, but there's kind of a cliche nature to it, right? There's kind of this take-it-for-granted nature of it. She's just saying this so that the conversation will move on. She, he, Jesus will leave. She can go home with the water, and things can go back to how they were. She gets called out. She knows how to act. And look what Jesus does. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit, in the truth. Jesus just basically said, that kind of canned line that you have, it doesn't matter. I'm not interested in this whole debate. I'm done with this. I'm doing something else. I'm doing something better. And look how he starts the address to her. He says, woman. Essentially, if we want to do a literal translation, this would be ma'am. This is a respectful term. And it's an interesting thing about this noun and where it's used and how it's used in the New Testament. We only find it ten other times used in the New Testament. Now, this might be you know, a little archaic for you. You may not be interested in this, but I think it's really interesting because it's used only ten times in the whole New Testament. This specific Greek word that's translated as woman right here. Six of those times are in the Gospel of John. John uses this a lot, relatively speaking, right? And he uses it one time that we talked about two weeks ago when Mary comes to Jesus at the wedding and says they have a problem, they're out of wine. What does Jesus say? Woman, why do you bring this to me? Jesus isn't being rude there. He's showing respect. In fact, there's another time at the end of Jesus' life at the cross. He looks down. He's hanging on the cross, and he speaks presumably to John, the author of this gospel. And as he is standing next to Mary, his mother, and he says to Mary, woman, this is now your son. Obviously, he doesn't point, but he looks, this is now your son. My son, this is now your mother. And he uses it two other times as well, Jesus does. He uses it with women who are on the outside of society, one being the Samaritan woman. People that should not receive respect. So what Jesus is doing, what John is pointing out, is that there is a shift right here, and that he, Jesus, is respecting this woman who some people would look as like lower than a dog. He's respecting this woman and saying, I give you dignity. I respect you. I am going to speak to you as I speak to my mother because you have value and you have worth. And look and listen to this. Look and listen to this, that there is something new going on here. Worshiping not just at a place and doing it this way or that way, there's a right way and a wrong way. There is an opportunity for all to worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and and in truth. Jesus uses that term woman. He uses it twice with his own mother. He uses it twice with outsiders, like this woman at the, at, the, at the well, and twice with Mary Magdalene, who is the most prominent follower of Jesus, and essentially the first preacher of the gospel in the gospel of John. She discovers the empty tomb and announces this to people. This woman has dignity in the eyes of Jesus. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain to us everything. Then Jesus declared, I, the one, am speaking to you. I am he. Have you ever been in a conversation, you try to get out of it, you're uncomfortable, and you don't know what to do. So you say these little sayings that kind of just kind of help you backpedal a little bit. Say, well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Look at the time, right? You're going to kind of find a way like, hey, let's just get out of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what you're implying here. I'm not getting on board with this. I'm not going along with that train of thought. So, hey, that that way worked for you. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. 
That's essentially what this woman does. I know that there's going to be a Messiah. I know that he's going to come and explain everything. I'd love for that to happen, but I don't know anything about that. And she starts to back away. And Jesus says, if you knew, if you knew, I am he. I am right here. So Jesus sees her retreating, and he boldly says, I am he. See, this woman, she is hiding from others, literally, by avoiding crowds. She's hiding from their judgment, from their gossip, from the words that they're saying about her, from the shame that she is experiencing. She is, she is hiding from having to explain herself over and over and over and over again for her life. This woman is hiding, and she's also hiding into these uh, by finding some old patterns. She's trying to jump back into these old patterns and say, well, that's where this religious divide happens, and that's for them over there, and this is what we do, and I don't know, and there's going to be a Messiah. And Jesus says, no, there's something new going on. There's something new here. She knows her life is a mess. She knows the religious leaders are going to condemn her. She expects this. But Jesus keeps calling her forward. Keeps calling her forward in something better, not while he denies, ignores, or minimizes the mess of her life. He calls that out. He fully calls out the mess of her life. He acknowledges, man, your life's a mess. But there's something better. Jesus isn't denying the impact of sin. Jesus is embracing, taking, absolving our sin. See, what we see in this woman is what we see in ourselves. These, these two truthful statements, at least in my life, and I see in the scripture as well, that first off, sin is a pattern and shame is a habit. Sin is a pattern because of this. I, I think about it this way. I, you ever watch somebody and they get all riled up and you know from past experience this isn't going to end well. You know where this is going to end up. You find yourself, you find yourself tired, frustrated, disillusioned you find yourself angry and you know you're going to do something self-destructive you know you're going to do something that's not good for you you know that's where it's headed people who love you maybe they're trying to call you out of that trying to point that out because sin is a pattern and shame shame that says this is all we're ever going to be shame that this is this is our life this is our life that we're always going to be like this these are always going to be the old rules it becomes a habit it becomes a habit i see this in my life in my life there's been two what i would consider big trips that i took by myself big trips that had to do with ministry that i took by myself my wife wasn't able to attend the first one was back in 2013, before I met any of you, before I moved down to Northern Kentucky, but when I knew we were going to go start a church in Northern Kentucky called Movement. And I got to go on this trip to Ecuador, to South America. It was a trip with a bunch of other pastors and with Compassion International. You may have remembered last uh, November, a little over a year ago, uh, we, in uh, November of 2019, we did this big Compassion Sunday. We talked about this. We get the kids sponsored and they get health care and food and spiritual education and education, all this great stuff, right? Well, I got to go and see like, on the, like, in, how things actually work and I was blown away by it. It's just an incredible organization. Can't, can't begin to recommend them high, higher enough. But I was going back through some of my notes. I found an email 
You know, you know, you're searching for an old email and you come across something. So I'm searching for an old email. I find this email from my time in Ecuador that I'd sent to my wife. And in that email, I said things like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I look around and these other pastors that are here, like, I'm a nobody compared to them. They're so much more successful. They've got, so, they've got this figured out. They know what they're doing. I don't have a clue. And it got to the point where I was like, question, like why am I here? I read that email. I thought, I'm still doing that. So I go over in my bag and I pull out a journal. It was my Israel journal. And in June of 2019, I went to Israel with, again, another bunch of pastors. I'm the youngest one there. I've got the smallest church. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, like there are guys on this trip that I listen to their podcasts, their sermons, right? I look up to them. I don't know them. I just kind of weirdly stalk them, right? It's weird. But I'm there, and I look at my journal, and the very first entry, you know what I say to myself? Why am I here? I don't belong here. I'm not good enough for this. I don't know enough. See, my sin pattern is to say this. I haven't earned this. And you know what God says to that? God says, you're right, but here it is anyway. God says to the woman of the well, you're right, your life is a mess. You're right that you've had failed relationship after failed relationship, but here is living water anyway. He looks at your life and says, you're right that you have screwed things up. You are right that you have patterns of sin that are self-destructive and you just feel helpless and powerless in front of them. You're right in that, but here is forgiveness. Here is grace anyway. The sin pattern in my life of saying that, God, I've got to do more, I've got to work harder, is a load of whatever. There's kids in the room. <laughs> and it's destructive. And it creates this shame habit where I somehow feel better about myself by tearing myself down. And so it's not power of positive thinking or whatever. I keep almost swearing, guys. I'm sorry. But it's not whatever all that other junk is, right? But it is saying clearly, I am a failure. My life is a mess. I am broken. Yet God still loves me. Yet God still forgives me. I haven't done anything to earn this, but I'm still invited to the party. I am still there. We spend so much time worried about pleasing others, worried about pleasing God, somehow being seen as acceptable in the eyes of others. We miss that God is saying, it's fine. I took care of it. Let's go. We have life to live. We have work to do. There is mission here, and you are missing out. One of my favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. Just, I just think it's incredible. The opening scene, the D-Day, all that. Not to spoil it, it's been out for, I don't know, 20 years or whatever, but the whole idea is that there's this one man, Private Ryan, whose brothers are also serving, he's got four brothers or whatever it is, and all of them have been killed in action. And so there's one squad, one small unit, Tom Hanks is the, is the captain of this unit, and he is tasked for getting this guy out of there if they've been cut off behind enemy lines, and get him out, get him home, because he's the survivor of the family. And this movie starts not with the D-Day montage that's so incredible, but actually starts with an old man at Arlington National Cemetery, right? And we don't know who this is. And we get to the end of the movie, and Tom Hanks is dying. 
And he looks to Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, right? And as he's dying, he looks at me and he says, earn it. This really, really powerful moment, right? This really, really poignant, powerful moment. And we get, as we flash back to that moment in Arlington National Cemetery, that that old man is Private Ryan, and he's wondering if he has earned it. That's a powerful thing. That's something we can relate to, but it's also not gospel. It's not gospel. We can live admirable lives. We can serve. We can sacrifice. We can do all these great things, but we don't have to earn it. We don't have to live that way. See, people of grace aren't playing the game of judging, of deeming people to be unworthy or worthy. They know their sin patterns. They can see things coming. They know, I'm in a bad place. If this keeps going, I'm going to do something self-destructive. They, they see the shame that they're heaping on themselves. This woman at the well, all of her mess has been exposed, and yet Jesus is offering exactly what she wants. Not just water, but relief. Grace. Forgiveness. So I'm asking you this. I ask people online this too. What are you hiding from? What are you hiding from? What are you trying to avoid? What are you hiding from by literally avoiding it? Or what are you hiding from by hiding behind the cliches? Hiding behind the things that you just kind of take for granted? Or maybe better yet, what are you thirsty for? What do you strongly desire? What is that relief? What does that thing look like for you? See, this woman wants relief. She wants freedom. She wants to stop avoiding everyone. She wants life. Uh, this author, Dallas Willard, who passed away a few years ago, but is an incredible gift to the church. He talked about the problem of this idea of sin management. That so often in our lives, we just say, well, if I can just manage my sin, if I can just put that in a corner, if I can just kind of minimize it, then I'll be good. When Jesus comes to say, no, 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 you're free from that. You're free from that. We're trying to manage it, be free from it. It isn't just about this woman somehow experiencing her relationships to be fixed on the spot. It isn't to see things just magically disappear. But it is this moment where she is freed. And look what happens in verse 28. Jesus has just told her who she is. Just told her who he is. It says this, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come. See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out to the town and made their way toward him. We read in the next few verses that Jesus stays and he teaches in this moment, all because this woman went back and told this story. He says, come and see. And then in verse 39, we read this. It says, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, hear this, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This woman who was a pariah, this woman whose life was a mess, simply returns and tells her story simply goes home and goes to the people she's been avoiding and tells her story. And look what happens. They believe, not because of how great she is, but because of the truth 
of Jesus. Our job as, past, uh, as followers of Jesus, our job as followers of Jesus isn't to, to solve everyone's problems. It isn't to, to make everything right. It's to be open and to tell our story. It's to acknowledge the patterns of sins. It's to acknowledge the habit of shame and fight it and ask God to remove it and recognize there's something better. Even if we find ourselves having to do really simple things to fight those patterns. You guys may know this, but basically for the last two and a half months, my father has been very ill. He's been very ill. He had COVID and he was on the respirator and all this stuff. It was just, it's terrible. The good news is this, he's home and he's recovering, but he's got a long, long way to go with mobility, with functioning, with stamina. He's, he was independent and now he's not. We got a long way to go. So many of you have been praying for him. And that, that, that means so much to me. It means so much to him. But there was a moment back in mid-November before he went to the hospital, but we knew he, had, knew he was showing symptoms and knowing that he is not, he's, he's, he's not somebody you want to get this horrible virus, right? And so I go and I pull out some shoes from my closet. It's these shoes. They're beat up. They're scuffed on the side. That's, there's a broken seam on this shoe. The shoelace is broken, so I can barely tie it. There are a pair of brown shoes that years ago my dad gave me because they just didn't fit them right. And he, like me, we had the same shoe size. And so I've been wearing these shoes. And I'm wearing these shoes because I want to remind myself to pray for my dad. So I put them on. That's what I do. I tell you that not to look how great I am, look how holy I am. I tell you this, hear this. I'm a pastor. My dad was, on, was in the ICU, has spent two and a half months in the hospital, is just now home and is not yet independent, and I have to be reminded to pray for him? This is my sin pattern. This is my shame, ha- shame habit. I say, Josh, you are terrible. How, how could you forget that? The man you love, you respect, you can't even remember to pray for him. You got to do something with your shoes? I think God says, yeah, you got to do something with your shoes. Yeah, you got to remind yourself. Yeah, you got to do things. You got to discipline yourself. You got to create new habits and new ways forward because there is life. And it doesn't come from what we do, it doesn't come from how good we are. It comes only from God. The woman at the well is hiding. And Jesus calls her out to new life. But before he does it, he says, I know everything. You're not busted. You haven't been exposed. You've been accepted. All of you. Every bit of you. So what does she do? She goes. She tells her story. Let's pray.